Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Mike Weber. I'm the uh, IWP alumni uh, uh, group's uh, president. This is a special uh, lecture for us, a special uh, day. Uh, this is the fifth uh, annual Brian Kelly counterintelligence lecture. Um, uh, we wanted to thank you all for attending the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new to IWP, uh, it's a graduate school of national security affairs and international affairs. Uh, they have five master's programs here, 18 cert certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. Uh, if you're interested in learning more, uh, feel free to speak to one of the staff at the end of the meeting or at the end of the lecture. Uh, so I'll get uh, right into the introduction of our speaker. Uh, our speaker is uh, Mr. David Major. He's a retired FBI supervisory special agent and president of the Center for Counterintelligence and Security Studies. Uh, he's here to speak to us uh, about uh, Edward Snowden. Uh, the man who conned the world. Uh, just a, a few uh, quick mentions, uh, uh, just a little background about this lecture. So Brian Kelly uh, uh, taught at IWP for several years, uh, retired CIA officer, uh, went through quite an ordeal towards the end of his career. Uh, he, was, um, he was accused of, um, of being a spy, essentially, by um, of being a spy, uh, when in reality there was a, an FBI agent who was uh, his counterpart, who um, uh, who was the actual spy. Now, the name is escaping me. What's Robert, Bob, Robert Hansen? That's right. I'm sorry. Robert Hansen was uh, was the spy, um, and Brian Kelly was accused of of uh, being that spy instead of uh, Robert Hansen. And so, uh, while he was essentially under interrogation, uh, his life was taken apart. Um, people uh, looking into to uh, his life to try and figure out uh, whether he was in in fact. Uh, uh, Mr. Hansen. Um, and so uh, he dedicated uh, the end of his, after his career, he dedicated a good portion of his life to making sure that um, that what happened to him um, and how he was treated would not happen again. And so uh, he incorporated that into some of his classes here. He taught a case about uh, counterintelligence studies, which was taken over by uh, John Quatraki, uh in the middle of, or part of, in the middle part of the semester after he passed away. Um, Wanted to mention also, we may have uh, Bill Nolte and Michelle Van Cleve, former speakers for our series here. Um, so uh, wanted to thank everyone again for coming. This is special for a lot of the alumni who took his class. Um, he was very generous with his time with the students uh, when he was teaching here. He was generous with the alumni, um, and he was uh, he was just a good overall all person, and uh, he's still greatly missed. So. Um, we do have in the next room after you after the event, if you have a chance, uh, we do have a little plaque uh, commemorating uh, his time at IWP. So if you guys want to check that out afterwards, uh, you can check that out. So uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, without further ado, Mr. Multi, or I'm sorry, Mr. Major, take it. <laughs> I'm kind of impressed with the luminaries that are here. For those who don't know, Michelle Van Cleef is a somebody. She was the head of counterintelligence for the community, and she was a very good friend when I was at the White House and been a colleague for years. And so I have great respect for her, Mr. Conrocki, who also was in the bureau with me. Do you teach here now? Okay. Well, I, was, I started 
the counterintelligence training program here and taught here from 92 to 2000. But when I had my own training facility set up, I couldn't, I would be here until 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, and then drive down to Calvert County, get home at midnight, and just beat the hell out of me. But uh, you probably don't recall. You started me on my career in counterintelligence with the role of toilet. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, this is kind of an inner sanctum group of people here who have been involved. It's very relevant that you get these many people who understand. Randy Ford and I were in the White House together also. He was on Pifiab. He's a great colleague. Uh, did a lot of things there. He was a young man. You knew he was on his way up, and boy, he went up. Eventually, he became the director of INR. State Department, and now he's a rich guy working for Corporate America, but he's a very dear, wonderful friend uh, with us. I also said John Lynchowski and I were in colleagues together at the White House, and it was John who came to me and he says, we got to set up this institute, and so I was the first instructor in 92 when he set it up, uh, which sidebar was interesting because I didn't retire for the FBI until 94, but I was working here. And uh, you can't have a secondary job in the FBI. You cannot do that. And I was working here, just training it. And so when they did my reinvestigation, when I left the, left the FBI and had a reinvestigation, the and a guy doing my background thought he got me. I mean, he kept saying, huh, you were working at WP, yeah. And you're not supposed to have another job, right? Yeah, I'm not supposed to have another job. Well, you're in violation of your rule. No, I'm not. What are you talking about? He says, well, I didn't do it. I didn't take any pay. He said, what? He said, I did it for nothing. I said, well, you why? I said, well, because I'm committed to this area. And also, I wasn't authorized to get paid. John loved that, by the way, <laughs> that we did that. But it was interesting how people see things. And, and since that time, it really was a jumpstone to get into what I do, and that is uh, run the Counterintelligence Training Center, which does an awful lot of training. We've trained over 150,000 people, and we have 54 different courses in counterintelligence. It's a very robust program. And one of the ways we maintain our credibility is through that paper I just said out called Spypedia, which we track every single spy case and every terrorist attack and every cy uh, cyber attack around the world every day. And it's updated on this membership webpage, and some universities use it. That's their textbook. To, to use it because it's really robust, about 7,000 pages, got every single case that you've ever had in this issue. So that's how I maintain credibility to talk about, about what you know is going on. <clears throat> and uh, I, don't, I didn't want to forget Mr. Dave Chorney, who is also one of my professors, the thing. I've, he also came here and took my course in counterintelligence, right? In, in this, I think it was this very room we were here. So this is kind of a flashback of all my buddies and so forth. So excuse me for going on about this. You know, um, Ken DeGraffenry, who also is a luminary, was a professor here, and he was my boss at the White House. He brought me to that position. Really a very smart man, still up in Maine writing his book. I sent to him and said, how are you going to write that book? He said, well, I'm still working on it. I got 600 pages, but I'm still working on it. Well, he could never finish anything. I know because when I was in the White House, he couldn't get paper off. You remember that. Couldn't get him off his desk because he kept trying to fiddle with it. So how he's ever going to finish a book, I don't know. But he did know I was giving this presentation. So he sent me a very, very interesting article that about the Snowden case uh, run by Bill Gertz. And uh, talking about the, the latest damage of this case, which continues on. It's fallen from the public eye, but it hasn't fallen from the intelligence community eye. And as I look at this case, I look at this as one of the many, many cases I teach. And I should tell you this, that when I actually teach this, it's about a two or three hour lecture. Uh, I, I don't have two or three hours here, but I'm going to give you the high points of the first part of this case. And the first part of this case is what I call the man who conned the world. This is a man that if, his, if he's talking, he's lying. And it's amazing how he's gotten away with the con that he is 
perpetrated on the American, particularly the media and academia, as to who he was and what he was. And most everything you think you know about Snowden is not true. So I'm going to try to show you that as I go through and show you how he conned us. As I said, the CIA Center does lots of training in the program, and Brian and I were dear friends. I, I knew him before he was a somebody and worked for Michelle at the NCIX. He was uh, an OSI special agent working counterintelligence. So we ran double agents together. So I knew him very well, and then I knew him when he went to, went to be a case officer for the CIA. And I also knew when they came to interview me at my office for two days about this case, people I knew in the FBI who basically said, and they started by saying, this guy's a spy, and we're just a matter of proving it. So there was no question in their mind that he was a spy. Well, it turns out he wasn't a spy, but it was a grueling kind of interview for me, and then I had to spy, sign a non-disclosure agreement that I wouldn't tell anybody about it. And I remember I was down at the farm, a training facility used by the CIA, and a good friend of mine from the Army, he just got interviewed also. So we, in the parking lot, started talking. He says, did you get interviewed? Yeah, I got interviewed too. And they started saying, this guy's a spy. And I said, well, if he is, he's smart enough to be a spy. But I have no evidence that he is. And so it was a very interesting area. After he was finally exonerated, he and his wife, eventually his wife, and my wife used to go to the Kennedy Center on a regular basis. Um, and so we continued to see each other. And Hank and his girlfriend came to our house, and he cornered you in a corner and talked about this issue, if you remember. Uh, so it was really a life-changing experience for Brian Kelly. It was for all of us. And every time you get involved in espionage, it's a life-changing experience. But unfortunately, as you know, he died uh, in, in his bed, and I think it may have been the stress of what had been going on in his life. I don't know. But I think it's possible because he really, really felt it all the time. And, you know, one of these times you start to say, you got to get off it sometimes, Brian. you just got to get off it because if not, it's just going to eat you alive. And that's what life is like. It has up and down. So, Brian Kelly, I was honored to, to speak here. I was, actually was approached at the AFIO where I'm on the board with Michelle, Association of Former Intelligence Officers, if I would come and give this presentation. And I said, I'd be more than pleased to do it for my friend, Brian Kelly. As I said, I do lots of things now that I'm retired, uh, lots of organizations that you're involved with. Um, and there was the, this was the very shows progression of aging, by the way, um, and gaining weight, by the way, and losing hair, by the way, and you haven't lost yours at all. But it is grayer than it used to be. We noticed that. You don't laugh. You're the same way. I remember you when you were a young, bright kid with dark hair. But uh, it has been a great journey, and I love my experience with the FBI. I'm a biochemist by training, so numbers impressed me. I went to Syracuse University, and I was in the Army. U.S. Armor Branch, uh, Special Forces Branch, and uh, then joined the FBI. I had to give up my commission in the FBI, uh, my commission in the Army to join the FBI. At that time, you couldn't be both. Hoover, I was hired by Hoover, he wanted you loyal 24-7, and that's what I was at. This is, the, this is the, my academy, uh, which is not the modern, more modern academy, so it goes way back if you want to do it. I went to Sarasota, Florida, thought I'd died and gone to heaven, get a car, give you a, a credit card, a car, and get lost for 10 hours a day with a good job, right, and carry a gun. And then from there, I got punished because I went to Newark, New Jersey, and which, by the way, was a great assignment because I learned my craft of counterintelligence because you have, it's a collector- uh, rich environment. You have collectors on, in New York coming across into the uh, target-rich environment, which was Newark. And so I really were able to do a lot of things in counterintelligence, which I never expected when I went to Newark. So it's interesting how we're guided in life and we're exposed to things, but it was a great assignment. Then I came down here to Washington, D.C., which was also a great assignment. You may not know this, but the FBI at that time was in Trump Towers. And uh, 
I was on the fourth floor on the right-hand side, and the top was the, was, was the wiretap room up the top, eighth floor. And if you, I don't know if you ever got to the, there. We called it Macbeth's Castle because it leaked. When it rained, the water just came into the area, and rats ran around in the area. It was really quite an experience. Uh, I don't think they do that anymore, but that's a little piece of history that you may not know. But it was the home of the FBI during that time frame. And then I went to headquarters as a, in the security office, and then from there I went to headquarters in the training division. And I spent a lot of time doing training FBI agents how to do counterintelligence. And then I was the first FBI agent to go to Moscow to see how the KGB worked against the CIA there and was to help them try to improve their operations to a large degree to help the Tokachev case. If you ever read the book, Billion Dollar Spy, it was because of their, what are you pointing at? Well, I made the remark earlier that you got me started in counterintelligence because we had just come back. Yep. And we came back yes. with a roll of toilet yes. paper and said, we're going to win because this is the best thing you do for toilet paper. <laughs> it was like glassine paper. <laughs> it, yeah, it was glass treatment. It, I couldn't believe what it was like. Glassine paper. So you got the hook and be back. That's, and, and you've loved it ever since. Yeah, right. All right, so I went from that assignment, I went back to Baltimore, which is a great assignment because Johnny Walker was brought in my office when he was arrested. We did some really good things in Baltimore. We had responsibility for NSA, and so I know the NSA culture a lot. And from there, uh, the Johnny Walker case hit, big case. And as a result of that is how I ended up going to the White House because this was a big a network of spies and I uh, went to become the first director of counterintelligence programs to put counterintelligence in the policy table. And I had an ally with, when I did this because the president of the United States was Ronald Reagan. And the first thing he told me when I went into the Oval Office, which, by the way, is a humbling experience for a young man from the state, New York State to shake hands with the president of the United States, and you sit down and he listens to you. That's really a scary position. A lot of other people said it's scary that he listened to you, David, too. That was, that was a, the, the joke. Anyways, but he says, you remember, I was an informer for the FBI. And I said, of course I remember, Mr. President. And we're proud of that, lying blatantly to the President of the United States because no one had ever told me that he had been an informant in 1948 when he was in the Actors Guild. I didn't know that. I didn't know my own history. And then I came from the FBI. And that really was the spark that we needed to change that. We needed to know where we came from to know where you're going. And so I made a commitment at that time that I wanted to establish a center of excellence to teach counterintelligence. This is a humbling experience. Very few people have that opportunity. Randy had it. Michelle had it. Uh, I think you had the same experience, but very few people ever sit down and the president listens to you. And by the way, this does prove I was thinner and had hair, just to let you know that it happens to all of us. So then I went to the inspection staff of the FBI, and from there I went to a senior executive position in the section chief. Bob Hansen worked for me, by the way, when I was in that job. And then I went to the Federal Executive Institute. Anybody ever attend that? It's the Charm School for SES, an unbelievable month-long training at the University of Virginia, uh, but not just counterintelligence people. I was the only one from there who came from our business, and none of them understood CI at all, which is very, very common. Most people you talk to, even in the government, they know very little about <laughs> counterintelligence. Counterintelligence. <laughs> All right. So from that, I went to the, the FBI's its own development program. They worked really hard to develop me. I went to the FBI Executive Development Institute, which is another month-long course to charm school to, so that you can talk to the media and try to handle yourself. And from there, I came here. This is what I was saying. I came here. I loved being here. And the only reason I just didn't continue is because it was eating me alive getting home so late and then having to go back on Tuesday morning and face another class of CIA professionals. So... Our information that I talk about is on Spypedia, 
And we run what I call my little bit schoolhouse. That's a long history about what, what we do, and that's why we study things like the Snowden case to say, what are the lessons for this? This is a lesson about how the system didn't work right. This man fell through the cracks, often because we care about protecting someone's privacy, and it really is a problem. Let me give you a quick snap on the insider threat, how big the espionage problem is, by the way. What is the espionage reality in America? The reality is that if you count all the people who have been arrested for espionage-related crimes uh, or diversion of technology or intellectual property theft, the number is up to 830 and counting. And we track these every day on Spypedia. I have a case study on that, and the, the, the red line is the average. And if you can see, right-hand side, the vast majority have been going on in the modern era. You're living through an explosion of espionage that's taking place, and they come from these countries with China having only five cases from 1947 to uh, 2000, and then since that time it's exploding to 165 cases, and it soon will by bypass the Russians, who are still been spying for some time. There she is. Hi, Trish. I was just talking about you. I was, and your lovely husband. This is Brian's um, former wife, or widow. Wonderful lady. Hi. Anyways, so these are the numbers today about the spy cases that are going on. It's alive and well. Most of them, by the way, now are in the private sector because China, by the way, will steal anything of value. And as Michelle said on national television, this is a candy store for their intelligence activity. If you really study it, it's absolutely true. Uh, and GTEC, I just talked about a very significant spy, Jerry Lee, and nobody knew about it in the whole room. They just didn't know about the cases. So what we try to do with Spypedia is make you the smartest person in the room because we update it every single day. And that's why, you know, it's a real commitment to us to, have to understand the issue. So let's talk about this guy. Uh, what is the truth about Snowden? Well, there's so much misunderstanding about this guy. The truth was he was not an NSA intelligence officer, and he was not a whistleblower. We can start from there. And as I said, if he's talking, he's lying. And when you actually look at it, you just make your skin crawl when you realize how he's treated by the media and others when they talk about him. The Hepsi wrote a report on him, 2016 report. That's quoted again in Bill Gertz's article, and basically they said the same thing. Second, he was not a whistleblower. He was not. From what he compromises, would not be a whistleblower. Because on and on, he, by the way, fourth, he was, remains a serial um, fabricator. And he is, because everything he says about himself is not true. But it's amazing how he's gotten away with doing it. And I love this quote from Winch Churchill. A lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get his pants on. And the communist must be prepared to make every sacrifice if necessary, every sort, all sort of cunning schemes and stratagem to employ illegal methods to evade and conceal the truth. All we have to do is listen today in the news about the truth, what's the truth, and how do you determine what the truth is. And Hitler said the same thing. The bigger the lie, you know, better than a small lie. Well, Snowden is an example of a big lie that he gets away with doing it. And Ola Kalugin said, he works for me, he was a major general in the KGB, and he said the number one mission in, in the Russian intelligence service has always been active measures or manipulation of the truth. Not getting spies, that's just half the story. Afterwards, it's manipulating that. And there's an interesting article about this that came out in the Scientific America. Anybody here subscribe to that magazine? Excellent. In April, you may have read the article called Inside, that's at the exact right time, Inside the Echo Chamber, and they talk about conspiracy theories are not new, but they live and they're actually a bigger problem today are conspiracy theories. 
One of the most dangerous social uh, trends of the age on equal footing with terrorism, this five-year study done that was, they spent millions of dollars, and they basically said it's the echo chamber. And that is, once you believe something, you believe it. And then you look for evidence to reconfirm what you already believe, not looking for the truth. And it is seeping into all aspects of our society. And we know that humans are not, as we long been assumed, rational. That's why it works. That's why active measures works. Humans are not rational creatures. The more you study that, the more you look at people who are betrayers. He said, you know, my view of people who betray become betrayers, and that's the spy, they're all a half a bubble off. Because if they actually think about it, they would never do it. But it made sense to them at the time. All right, I don't know why he keeps doing that, but... All right, I, I don't know. But... This is irritating to me as much as you. Anybody here a technical person? All right, anyway, can you fix that? Or turn off this thing and just, I'll just talk. Anyways, this is a very good article, by the way, but the bottom line of this article, conspiracies rise because people find themselves unable to determine simple causes for complex and adverse circumstances. So it's easier to believe in some nefarious they as apart from the truth, just like the Kennedy assassination. We know who killed Kennedy. The evidence is overwhelming who killed Kennedy. And it was Lee Harvey Oswald operating by himself. But a large percent of Americans, over 50% today, believe it was some conspiracy, some nefarious they. I don't know who the they are, but that they are the responsible for these issues. I was really saddened to see that the King's family still believe that there was some conspiracy for the killing of their father and their, and their uh, husband. And they just recently said that. And that saddens me, because if you actually looked at it with an open mind, you'd realize who really the issue is. So choose to believe complex explanations that clearly identify an object of blame. That's why conspiracy series works. And that's why it's getting a bigger, bigger problem in our culture today. That my worldview, I choose to believe what I already believe. And you can go on the Internet and find that evidence which reconfirms what you already believe. And that's all you're going to look at. And therefore, this is a self-licking ice cream cone. That's why it's called the echo chamber. The dynamic suggests the spread of online information is very hard to stop. And that was the takeaway. This is a very difficult problem in our society. That How do you get people to understand the truth? Because they're only going to look for evidence that they already reconfirms what they already believe. Now, that's somewhat true for Mr. Snowden because there's a lot of books out of him. Most of them are very bad books about him. They perpetrate the myths that we have about who this guy is. And then there have been a couple movies that are also bad about him. Uh, one of them got an Oscar, by the way, reconfirming the myths about who this guy is. One of the better books about him is the, uh, How America's Lost Its Secrets. Anybody here read that book? If you want to read a book on Snowden, that would be my one recommendation, because it's very balanced. By the way, Epstein hasn't always been that way, and some of his books that he's written are kind of, you know, off thing. But this is a this is a good book on understanding Snowden, which is material that's not you don't see anywhere else, or not like this. Once once again, we're always looking in the spy business for motivation, and let me tell you what it is and is not. There's never one reason. And the next time anybody in any presentation on counterintelligence tells you the following. Why does someone do it? And they say, oh, it's mice. Money, ideology, compromise, and ego. 
That's the simple answer. You're getting the kindergarten answer. It's far more complicated than mice. So if you're ever writing a paper or you're lecturing to somebody, don't throw out the mice because if you throw out that to me, I know exactly that you're rank amateur because mice is much worse than that when you study why people do it. I teach an entire course on the psychology of the betrayer, why they do it. And it's never one reason, but there are some things like antisocial narcissism is an issue, grandiosity is an issue, turning this thing off is a better issue. If someone could just turn it off, I can I can talk loud enough because it's probably driving you crazy like it is me. Just turn it off. So antisocial narcissism, grandiosity, rules of security, are impetus, sense of entitlement, those are some really big issues on why someone can choose to do something that doesn't seem logical. And, and basically, being a betrayer doesn't seem logical because you're betraying. Are you coming up to fix something or just to listen to me? Okay. I can talk really loud if you want. You know that. <laughs> All right. So, the, and by the way, these really explain Mr. Snow. Okay. So let me try the backstory of Snowden, best I can. And you can make your own judgments if you do research and look at this. Most times you won't see this, and if you read most articles, you won't see this, or you'll go over them. First of all, just turn it off. Should be off now. Okay. Let's hope it turns off now. All right. We'll see. All right. Father Lon Snowden was a Coast Guard guy. Thank you. Turn it off. Mother Wendy. And this person, which is an important part of the story, was his uh, maternal grandfather, Admiral Joseph Bennett. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Can you hear me well enough in the back? If you don't, raise your hand and I'll talk louder. You go to the head of the class. I know why you're the president. Because <laughs> you can turn that button off. I would have done it if I knew. All right. So that's where he comes from. All right. At age 15, his life changes significantly. He's got an older sister who's the good sister, if you would. And you got the young 15-year-old. The parents are getting a divorce. And so the father goes to Pennsylvania with his girlfriend. And Snowden, Edward Snowden, is sent by his family, his mother, up to Ellicott City to live in an apartment by himself. Now think about that for a 15-year-old. And he drops out of high school. And what does he do? He plays games. He's a gamer during that time frame. Now... The sister obtains her degree from University of Maryland and went on to graduate school, uh, to law school. So she's the good sister. She's the one that everybody's happy with, but they don't have to worry about her. He, on the man, is left behind. The sister's success, this guy has felt abandoned by his parents. Now, bad parenting is no excuse for bad behavior. And as my wife likes to say, it's uh, not an excuse for bad behavior because we all can have bad parents. If you're a parent, you're not necessarily going to be perfect. But this, I do think, affected him, at least his worldview, when he's 15 years old. And then he creates, begins to create sort of a fantasy world about who he is and what he's going to be. 2000, his parents were divorced. His father moved to Pennsylvania, the new wife with him, and his mother bought the two-bedroom condo where he lived in by himself. As I said, there he was a gamer. Have you ever been to... Uh, she lived in Crofton, the home in, in Maryland, and he, the 15-year-old, left to do that. So... He lived alone with his two cats during that time frame. And in 2001, still living alone, he spent a lot of time on fantasy games on the Internet and posted this new name, uh, True Hola Ha, on website. And this will maintain it until he defects. He maintains the, this active life on the Internet, this fantasy life as maybe what he wants to be. He claims special skills and, you know, uh, a um, uh, 
martial arts technique, and he used he will use this fantasy until he eventually will defect. So that's an interesting side of this guy. I don't know how many of you still play fantasy games, but kind of grow up after some one time. But he doesn't. He keeps that. What he said is he was 37 years old, the father of two, um, on the Internet. That's how he defined himself for the, what the world wanted to see, what he was. So his fantasy, used, he says he weightlifter and intense training to precisely shape his body. If you look at his body, which I'll show you, it doesn't look precisely shaped. But for him, that's what he was saying. He bragged he reduced his body fat to between 9.5 to 10.5 due his workout, hard works. And he wore purple uh, sunglasses. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, if that makes you cool, that's cool at a young age. He practiced martial arts. There's no evidence he did that. And he was a fan of Japanese cuisine. He might have been. Uh, he had a head of vibrant, shining blonde hair with volume. That's how he defined himself. Really? Well, it turns out... He claimed he studied Japan for one and a half years. Not true. There is no record he ever took any course in Japan any time in his life. But he put, perpetrated that, you know, cover of what, what he was. <coughs> now, after he creates that, in 2003, he decides he wants to join the United States Armed Forces. And there's a special program for 18-year-olds, and it was called the 18X Program. And he could join the U.S. Army Reserve because what you would do is you go to basic training at Fort Bragg, and then you'd go to jump school. And from there, they send you on to Special Forces training, which is a fast-tracking into Special Forces Reserves. So that's what he decides he wants to do at 18. Uh, he listed on his application, by the way, that he was a Buddhist, explaining later that they didn't have a place to put down agnostic, which I thought was just an interesting sight. So he's not very spiritual or religious belief, at least doesn't appear to be. There's no evidence of that. But he had to say something at the time. So he listed in the Army in May 2005. He completed his 10 weeks basic training at uh, Fort Benning. Anybody ever go to Fort Benning basic training? Okay. No one ever do that? Yeah. How was it? Tough? Of course it was. Suck. Did you say sucked or tough? Sucked. Yeah. Well, that, you joined the Army. What'd you expect? <laughs> he got through it. Did you get through it? He got through it too. All right. Oh, I'm sorry. I've been to Fort Benning. You went to something. That was bad planning. By somebody. That's right. You know why? Because you're in the army. <laughs> Whoever told you you'd have choice. Oh, good. Wonderful. Anyway, so then he, in August, he decides he's going to go to jump school. Uh, how, many, how many of you been to jump school? Three weeks old. You been to jump school? Excellent. So was I. Airborne qualified. Hoorah. Right? So he went through that. Is that tough? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, at, you know, physically it's tough. And then you get to the last week, which is jump week, and you make five jumps, and if you're successful doing that, you become airborne qualified for the rest of your professional career in the military and reserves. He did not complete the jump school training. Now, this is interesting, a perfect example of the fantasy world, and don't believe what he tells you. On the internet, he says he washed out. That may be true. In September, he was discharged from the Army September. Now, the discharge was an interesting side of this man's background, because how many of you are ever in the military? Okay, good. What kind of a discharge do you want? Honorable discharge. If you don't get an honorable discharge, can it have consequences? How would you like to get an administrative discharge? What does that mean? And you get a security clearance, you have administrative discharge, because he doesn't get an honorable discharge in the military. And so he claims he broke both his legs, total fantasy. He did not break his legs in jump school. He dropped the program for medical reasons. By the way, he will often say that if there's a problem, it's somebody else. In high school, 
He dropped out of high school, he says, because he got mononucleosis, and he had to drop out of it. No evidence he ever had mononucleosis. But it's somebody else's fault, and therefore, because I got sick. He goes to jump school. He says, I broke my legs. I, it's not my fault. I broke my legs. There's no evidence he broke his legs when he was there, but he didn't finish. And so he then will later say, well, there had these inferior intelligence of his superiors. He says, everybody who's his boss is dumber than the dumbest people in the world. He has this track. This is true in the Army, and it's going to be true in NSA. It's going to be true in CIA. So wherever he is, he's smarter than whoever is his boss. That's an interesting dynamic. It's not uncommon. One man I know had that same characteristics was Bob Hansen. Bob Hansen did not suffer fools well. And if he, he would always, if he knew someone in the bureau and he didn't like him, he'd, be, he'd snicker to himself under his breath, which I thought was interesting. It's exactly the kind of action that this guy's taking about everybody above him is stupider and he's the smartest person in the room. And he did, he did not get a medical discharge, but he did get an administrative discharge from the Army. That's not a good thing. If you get an administrative discharge, it'd be problematic to get a security clearance because someone's going to say, why did you only get an administrative discharge? That never seems to surface with this man. They just sort of skates through that one. And it's when the command seeks to involuntarily separate the soldier through the non-judicial process. And separating can be a big deal akin to being fired from a job of a civilian. So it is not a small issue and one that uh, never really surfaces if you hear people talk about this case. So that's one reason he never should have been where he eventually was. All right. As I said, he was a high school dropout, not because of medical reasons, which is his claim, but because um, he had mononucleosis, which he didn't. So once again, blame others, which is characteristics of this man's worldview. However, he perpetrates this. In 2004, I joined the U.S. Army under the 18 X-ray Special Forces Recruit Program. Now, uh, I have to give high respect to, to everyone in the military, and especially the graduates of those programs, because they are better men than I. Uh, I was injured very early on in the program and washed out. And, you know, I, I readily admit it. I, I don't hide that. Snowden reportedly left the military after breaking both of his legs in training. But the fact is that I tried. You know, I, I saw what was going on in the world. Uh, I believed the government's arguments that we were going to do good things in Iraq, that we were going to free the oppressed. Uh, and I wanted to do my part to help share the national burden and create not just a better America, but a better world. He's got his talking points down well. And notice how well NBC does to vet what he has to say. Yeah, he broke both his legs. No checking, no following up, no saying that's a fabrication. He just you have sympathy for him. Poor guy broke his both his legs. So now what's he do? It's September. He's he's unemployed. Can't go in the military. He's administrative discharge. So what he does? He's 21 years old, no high school diploma, unemployed from September to December, four months. What he does do is he decides he wants to go work for the National Security Agency. Now, you've probably heard this. His first and only employment as a blue badger in the government, blue badge means he worked for the government versus a contractor, is when he works for NSA. Well, if you listen to the narrative, he's an intelligence officer. For, no, no, he wasn't. What he was, he was a security specialist, which he says he was, which he wasn't. He was a uniformed armed guard at the University of Maryland for a facility down there, run for NSA, and he worked the night shift. Now, if you are a uniformed guard, at four, you're not a security specialist. You're a uniform guard for NSA. He has to get a security clearance for doing that. And he works from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., the night shift, and he was paid $29,000. So that's his first job as 
as a blue badger in his only job as a blue badger. So he does that job, and he had to be granted a security clearance, and he takes a polygraph during that time frame. All right. Now, he was a uniformed guard working the overnight shift. How much access to any intelligence do you think he had? None. He was just the guard that he was there. He didn't seem to like that job. So this is during the time he wanted to become a male model and had professional pictures taken. He was never hired as a model, by the way. Now, maybe you women will find him very attractive. In fact, he used to say that I like my girlish fix that attract girls. Now, we have some young ladies in here, and maybe he is very attractive to you. But my wife says, you got to be kidding me, <laughs> when she's looking at this young man who has this trimmed body. Uh, that he, but that's his professional photographs to become a male model. By the way, he was never hired as a male model. He wanted to be one, which is an interesting sidebar in his life, never reported much. So 2005, uh, he left his job as an overnight security guard after nine months in the job. What he did is he went down to a job fair uh, that was operating here in Washington, D.C., run by the intelligence agencies. And during that time, he said, I want to go work for the CIA. All right. What do you want to do with the CIA? Well, he has two tracks. He could be a case officer, now he's in the D.O. running operations, or he could be an administrative support or a technical guy for NSA. He did not meet any of the requirements to be hired by the CIA by anything. He couldn't. He wasn't qualified to do admin job, technical job, CO job. He doesn't have the education even to be considered for the CIA. So you may wonder, did he get required? Well, the requirement was a the clandestine decision. We have to have a BA or a master's degree with a GPS at 3.0. He didn't have that because he never gone to college. He was a high school dropout. He could have an intelligent technology job. Uh, he could have an associate degree from a two-year community college in electronics and these other issues with a GPS of three to four. He didn't have that. He never went to community college. One of the myths about this man is that he's this great guru, great technical guru, who knows everything about this and studied it. Not true. He never had a very technical assignment in an, or in the government at any time. I'll show you what he did have. All right. So his requirements are intelligence tech only of he could have a job if he had been in the military and had a telecommunications job. Didn't have that. So there's no way he qualified to get a technical job or communications job. So how did he get hired by um, CIA? It's an interesting uh, uh, complex in this case. There's no way he was qualified for doing it, yet he was hired by the CIA. Well, if you start researching that, it turns out, how did this happen? Well, this is also an interesting part of the story. His maternal grandfather was Admiral who by this time was now working at the FBI. He had retired from the Coast Guard, and this is when the time that Mueller wanted to expand the Bureau by bringing outside people in to make the Bureau better, because those of us who were in the Bureau really weren't smart enough to understand it ourselves and grow up in it. They want to bring outside people in to supervise it. So they bring this admiral in and put him in charge from the air aircraft business. The, the, the FBI runs a very extensive surveillance program using aircraft, and he was put in charge of it. My neighbor, who is a pilot, knew him and knew what he was like. And he says the pilots weren't really happy about this guy coming in. But he said, well, tell me what he was like. He says, oh, he's that kind of guy that you've all met sometimes, which is kind of a telephoneer. In other words, he's working this system. He has lots of buddies. Hey, how you doing? What's going on? Where are you going? I used to call him in the FBI. You know, I'm always looking for the next assignment. Then I'll be happy. Well, this guy always worked the system. And so... And he says that's what he was like, and that's where he was. And he had lots of closeness with NSA and with FBI and with the CIA in that job. So, interesting. 
What he does is he retires from the Coast Guard in 99, hired by this job as an SCS section chief of the Aviation Special Operations section of the FBI and worked with CIA and FBI in operations. <clears throat> so it is conjured that he appealed to the CIA to hire Edwin to get his job started. Now, I can't confirm 100% that that is true, but most of the evidence I looked at says that the guy made the right telephone call. He called someone up and said, can you help my grandson? He needs a boost to start his career. Because there's nothing else in his background that would ever had him be hired by the CIA. Now, if you've been around for a while, you know periodically this happens. So he gets a job. Now, what are they going to do with him? He doesn't have a high school degree. But what they're going to do, now he's a gamer, so he's not afraid of computers, so he does that. And so he is offered a job for $66,000 as a high school dropout as a year as a CIA communications officer. So they're going to send him off for training to be a communications officer. Basically, that means keeping the communications going. That's not cryptology. That's not cyber attack. That's just the communications. And every field office and every place has these. And he bragged on his blog that he made $70,000 and does not have a degree of any type. And he was proud of that fact. Then he will say on television, I was trained as a spy in the sort of traditional sense of the word. I lived and worked undercover overseas, pretending to work in a job that I'm not in, and even being assigned a name that was not mine, which is a total fantasy. That's not true. It's a fabrication. Almost a year to when this story first broke, Edward Snowden was defined early on and not altogether accurate. And famously called him a hacker. We in the news media passed along and repeated terms like systems analyst and outside contractor that didn't really mean all that much and according to Snowden didn't really describe what he did for a living. How do you define yourself? Are you, were you trained as a spy? Specifically, I'm talking about this, the titles, uh, systems analyst, contractor. It seems to me spies probably look a lot more like Ed Snowden and a lot less like James Bond these days. Well, it's no secret that uh, the U.S. tends to get more and better intelligence out of computers nowadays than they do out of people. Um, I was trained as a spy in sort of the traditional sense of the word in that I lived and worked undercover overseas, uh, pretending to work in a job that I'm not, uh, and even being assigned a name that was not mine. Now, the government might deny these things. They might frame it in certain ways and say, oh, well, you know, he's a, he's a low-level analyst. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to use one position that I've had in a career here or there to distract from the totality of my experience, which is that I've worked for the Central Intelligence Agency, undercover, overseas. I've worked for the National Security Agency, undercover, overseas. And I've worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency as a lecturer at the Joint Counterintelligence Training Academy, where I developed sources and methods for keeping our information and people secure in the most hostile and dangerous environments around the world. Uh, so when they say I'm a low-level systems administrator, that I don't know what I'm talking about, I'd say it's somewhat misleading. Somewhat misleading? I would suggest you he's misleading. But he perpetrates this myth. He's never challenged by what he just said. And if, if the interviewer knew anything about the business, he could come back at him, but he doesn't because it's what they want to believe. 
The media wants to believe him because, remember, leaks are a cash crop, particularly in Washington, D.C. That's why they embrace leakers, because that's how you get great stories. So a guy comes forward and tells him secrets. I'm going to believe him because I want to believe him. And this case is filled with that. It has to do with the media. He was never overseas undercover. Everything you just heard was a fabrication. He attended information training for six months, trained as a communications officer. In March, he was assigned to the CIA station in Geneva, where there were 800 other CIA employees under true name as part of the permanent U.S. mission to Geneva. He never had a false name. He never ran operations. He worked for two years, a little less than two years, as one of dozens of CIA information technology servicing the CIA communication channels. That's what he did overseas. He never worked overseas for NSA. He will go overseas as a contractor for NSA, which I'll show you in a minute. So his only blue badging job is a uniform guard for NSA and a information technology uh, communication specialist under real name. Yet he gets away with this perp and people say, oh, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Going down to Jesita to set up methods for, are you kidding me? First of all, they wouldn't do that in J.C. He doesn't even know that. He throws that out. You and I have been to J.C. But he throws that out. Oh, Counterintelligence Training Academy must really know what he's talking about, this young 29-year-old. So junior-level job at the CIA. All right, four-room apartment provided by the CIA. Lindsay Miller joined him there, and who I have referred to. I got, well, got in trouble in one case by making the statement, so let me put the caveat on it. His pole-dancing girlfriend is not a misogynist statement. That's her profession. She teaches people how to do pole dancing. So that's what, how she's doing it. And she comes and lives with him there. And she will continue to be with him. And they live together in Geneva. And he began buying and selling. This he got in trouble, by the way, selling options on the market when he was there. And he had a massive loss and speculated $20,000 in one month in October. Now, some people have said, and I don't have any evidence of this, but it's possible that he could have come up on someone's operational screen at this time because he starts posting these losses on his blog. Now, if a foreign intelligence service is looking at that, I would get all hungry about that if I knew him as trouble. There's no evidence that he did, but it may be or could be a time that the Russian intelligence service may have seen him of interest. You shouldn't be posting that on your blog that you're in debt for $20,000 for your speculation. And in the security business, we know that. He discussed his financial losses, uh, and so someone could have known this problem. So in December, before the two years uh, ends, he had his dream ends. His dream is two years, he comes up for his routine polygraph and two-year evaluation in his assignment. His supervisors suspect that he was trying to break into the classified computer files in which he was not authorized in Geneva in his station. Well, it turns out he was trying to break in to change his parse. He wanted to modify what they were writing about him. So he breaks in. Unfortunately for him, they find out he's breaking in. This is not a good thing. If you work for the CIA and they find out about this, what are they going to do with you? Well, they're going to send you home short of service. And then they're going to put a derog in your file. And then you're going to have a really tough time. And then you're going to spend the uh, security Nazis and polygraph with some real problems, which they do. And so... He got his performance report by hacking into the CA files. That's why he was doing this. He later will change that story. Geneva management uh, put a derog in his file and sent him back to the States short of tour. He's in trouble. So once he does that, he sits down with the security people, and he faces an internal investigation of suspicious activity, and he faces suspension of a security clearance. He has a way out. And what is his way out? 
you can resign, Mrs. Snowden. You can resign. And so he decides, he's allowed to resign, but then, when the investigation ends, but then, because they want him to land softly, he's allowed to continue to have his security clearance. Now, that's a bad management decision. He never should have been allowed to keep that security clearance, but the CIA will never tell anybody what, about this incident because it's a privacy issue. So when he comes up later for reinvestigation, they never tell him why he resigned. He just resigned because he wanted to move on with his life. So he's allowed to retain his security for two years, never revealed the fact that the rock in his file and that he'd been forced to resign. That could have made a big difference in stopping this guy, but it didn't because no one acted on it. So he worked for the CIA. Yes, sir, please. Just to mention that I was introduced to the actual guy who, in effect, fired him from CIA. And he took great pride in that. So he was told, either you resign or you will be fired. Because he was heard of that, so he was committed to the resign. Yeah, right. Perfect. Did you meet him? No, I have not. But you're going to introduce me to him. Oh. All right. That's your job. What does your stand Derogatory. Derogatory, it's inside the beltway term, but it's derogatory. And you don't want that in your file. You, you know, it could affect your thing. In this case, it's going to get fired. Because you don't break into the computer. You're brand new on probation, for God's sakes. But yet, Phil Hubris as he was, he tried to get away with it. He will eventually explain this away. He explains away by everybody around him. His career-ending derog was over an email spat with the supervisors. He will say. He will say. He claims the supervisors ordered him not to rock the boat. He said, I was trying to make the CIA better by looking at the security problems that they had in their email systems and also technical teams. He brushed off even though he had a legitimate grievance about the flaws in the computer system. It kind of sounds like what Bob Hansen did when he said, I was trying to help them when I broke in the system to show the flaws they had. Well, I think more likely that's true with Bob Hansen, but certainly this, this is just his excuse. i got to tell people why I resigned from the CIA, and that's why. These bosses were stupid, didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't know as much as I did. And he, placed, he said he placed codes in the computer system to prove it had flaws which were discovered. Huh? And then he took revenge on him, they say, and they claimed he was incompetent. He says the CIA was incompetent, blind, and errors were caused by his superiors. See? Somebody else's fault. Projected blame. Not my fault that he did that. So he justifies this when everybody asks him why he leaves the CIA. And so he, now during this time frame, he's unemployed from February to April. At that time, Dell Corporation has a contract. And the contract is support NSA in a technical program. And they want to send people overseas to do monitor, I'll show you what the thing is, monitor a program of downloading information from Fort Meade to the field. That's all. Sit at a computer and watch them download information. And so since Dell, he has a security clearance, he could go to Dell and say, I have a security clearance. Well, guess what? Dell never does the background investigations. The corporations are never responsible for the background. They're done by the government. He can say, I have a clearance. If they run it through the system, yeah, he has a clearance from the CIA. So, and he can move right now immediately. Well, this is a perfect thing for them. So they hire him to go to Japan. And so from Japan, he, uh, he does not, by the way, never tells the NSA why he was right. Now, he's not an employee now. He's a green badger. He's a contractor for Dell supporting an NSA program. And there he goes to work at this Air Force Base. And his job 
is that what the NSA is trying to do is take the data they have from Fort Meade and dump it down into a field division should one system crash and they have an opportunity to reconstitute that information. It's simply moving data, but there's a lot of data to move. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, how to do it. I do it with my technical company that I hire. And if I want to get a new computer or I want to get a thing, they could take it to their home and they start downloading all my material. That's all he's doing. He's downloading. Now, he has many, many terabytes of information NSA is downloading. And he's supposed to sit there and watch it. This is not a cyber guy. This is not a breaking guy. This is just watch the computer. If something goes glitchy, you can respond to it. And that's what he's doing in Japan. Now, he will eventually enroll, he says, in online courses at the University of Maryland at the base to get credit towards a college certificate. He would later claim he was taking courses for graduate degree in computer sciences at the University of Maryland field division. Well, University of Maryland does that, but they don't have a graduate program. He never enrolled for anything. He never took any courses, but he says he did. He eventually adds to his resume. When I was there, I was taking graduate courses for the University of Maryland. No one ever checked it, but he said it when they started talking about what he was. He did not have any graduate courses in computer science, did not enroll in the summer, did enroll in the summer, did not receive any credit or certification, but he did enroll. That was about all he did do. So once again, the truth gets modified. Now something interesting happens, which is a complicated in this case, and he takes a vacation in, in September 2nd to 11th. He goes to India. He does it on his own. And in India, he claims he was working for the U.S. Embassy. Not true. He spent his own money to go there, and he was at a university, at, at a, a hotel, and he attended a course uh, called Ethical Hacking. But what it really was, based on what I know, it was how to hack, not how to do it ethically. But that's what, of course, he was taking to learn how to hack, because he's not a hacking expert. So he does this here, and he paid $2,000 to have this experience of doing it in India. This, to be is problematic, because this could have been a time when he was on someone's radar screen. We don't know that. But somehow, he decided he wanted to take this course, all right? So in October, he's assigned as a systems analyst, and uh, he's involved in this project I told you about, which is backing up NSA's programs. That's what he's doing in uh, Japan. That's what he does. He sat in front of a computer all day long looking for any problems in the transfer of files. Has anybody ever done that, had the job of transferring files from one location to another? Is that boring or what? Because you're just sitting there watching it, and if nothing goes wrong, you've got to go in there and fix it, and then it continues to do. This is not a hacking expert at all. That's what his job is in Japan. One year later, after doing that, Dell loses the contract, which is often in the contracting business, and so he's moved back to Annapolis to work on other projects because he's already cleared, so he's of value to them, and he's working on projects there, and she comes with him, Lindsay comes with him, and he moves into Maryland. Looking for Dell, but not in an NSA project. All right? So he's assigned to corporate clients such as CIA, NSA, and DIA, but he doesn't go on site. He works these projects from Dell headquarters. All right? So he's not an insert at that time. He's a contractor from Dell headquarters. And his, in February, his CIA security clearance expires. He had it for two years. Now he's got a face being reviewed all over again. Now, who's, they're going to do a contract background investigation for him from a contractor doing it. And you figure there's enough of his background that may be problematic for getting his clearance. But he applies for a new clearance. And the contractor, USIS, which is out of business now, by the way, does background but has, was not advised of the derogatory information the CIA files, and then he was terminated. They won't tell him. 
CIA never tells that to NS, that background investigators, you would think they would. They say, no, it's a privacy issue. Well, what are you talking about? That's what, that's what backgrounds are. But then something happens. During this thing, he, was, he had an interview, subject interview, with the investigators from USIS. And during that time, he said, what did you do with the CIA? And I says, I can't tell you. You don't have the clearances to know what I did. Therefore, you don't have the access, what I did in Geneva, and he claims that they, they, the back, background investigator had no need to know. I've seen that before, right? You, uh, you stop the person, oh, if you knew what I knew, I couldn't tell you what you knew, so therefore I'm telling you. So the background investigator is kind of limited to what he could write. He does, they give him a clearance. So they pass it on, he gets a clearance, granted a new clearance in August of 2011. Patel has no basis of making this decision, but the government does. And so NSA gives them a security clearance, not knowing any of the negative information we've already talked about. What? TS. TS. So it's classic stovepiping. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This this is the classic example of stovepiping. We work very hard to eliminate stovepiping, but it's still done, you know, because we got to protect the privacy of this person. Please. Just want to mention, you, a few slides back, you mentioned that Japan. He was made a system administrator. Yeah. And I'm knowing a little bit about computers, if you get sysadmin privileges, mm. it gives you access to places in the computer um, that a normal user does not have. So that was a big thing, and he probably sought that. But it wasn't his primary job. It was sort of a secondary job but that he did. So he exactly right. Exactly. Get in. You can come in, by the way. Perfectly okay. I don't mind. Come in. Some seat, someplace. Better than peeking around the corner. All right. So then what happens is that NSA gets gives the contractor back to Dell. So it's reactivated again. So they go back to him, and now he's got a clearance. Would you like to go back to Hawaii? Not to Japan. Would you like to go to Hawaii? He says, yeah, I'll go right now. I can take my girlfriend and go to Hawaii. And so this gives him a new window of opportunity as he goes to work for NSA. And now he's paid, amazingly, $120,000 in Hawaii to do a job uh, which is basically the same job before, and that is the downloading of information. Talk about inflated responsibilities. That's kind of an inflated salary for what he was doing. But he did get paid it, and he was working at this regional base, often referred to as the tunnel, because it was built in World War II, and uh, they would go into this spooky place, and they would work these technical programs in Hawaii. And if you've been in this business or been to Hawaii, you know what I'm talking about. So in April 2000, this is when the spying begins. Question mark, what sparked his interest to decide on, appears to be his own, to steal documents? Now, he could have been tasked by somebody else. He could have been recruited by, in India by an intelligence service. No evidence of that. But it is interesting that based on the public available information, he decides in April of 2012 to steal more documents. Now remember, he doesn't defect until June of, two, or actually May and June of 2013. So it's more than a year before he actually says he was so offended by what he saw going on that he decided to steal documents. And he starts doing it in this assignment. And that during this time, he stole at least 50 to 200,000 documents. Now it's reported he stole about 1.7 million documents when he finally defects. And from 9 to 5, he had a little windowless room in the tunnel watching the downloading going on again. Once again, not responsible for cybersecurity issues, even though he will claim that's what his job was. It did not match his online hero image. If I'm going to be a hero, 
be a fighter. I should do something other than start watching this computer screen. And so he's kind of, I would suggest you frustrated when that's going on. I don't know if that marked his, let's steal some documents. Now, something remarkable happens in July of 2012. And when he decides that he's so smart that he should be an SES at the age of 29 at NSA, having never worked there, I'm going to apply to get an SES. I don't work for him, a contractor, but I'm going to apply to be an SES. That's kind of hubris, in my opinion. I, just, I could never imagine doing that at 29, but he decides he's going to do that. So in the summer of 2011, while assigned at Dell headquarters, he went into, he hacked into NSA system and stole the test for SES. Now he has the test. So a year later, he now applies to the job and has to take the test, which is interesting. So at age 29, he took the test and aced it. Question, should this have been a flag? How could this young 29-year-old know enough about NSA to pass this test and get it? You know, an ace it because he had the test and he had the answers. I think that that should have been a flag to somebody, but it didn't seem to be. So now they said, I got this brilliant kid here who's passed this test that he stole, but they don't know he stole it. And so what do we do? Well, we got to offer him a job. So he's not hired as an SES, but they offered him a job as a GS-13, as an information technology worker. Well, if he wants to get into the system, now he's already stealing documents. What do you think he does when he gets that job offer? No, I don't want that job. I should be an SES. Besides that, I don't want that job. Because he's obviously planning to do what he's going to do because he doesn't take the job. So he's offered it at this time and he did not accept the job and he intensifies his Rose activity. So now in the summer or the uh, spring or uh, late, late, late summer, early fall of 2012, he's going to defect in 2013. He really starts to steal more documents when he's in Hawaii. Now, this is when he will eventually make contact with these two journalists and say that he wants to offer them information. He describes himself to them as a very senior member of the intelligence community. They have no idea who is contacting him, but the person who's contacting him has secrets. What do they want? The secrets. And so they're more, more than willing to conspire with him as early as January and February of 2013 to get the documents. He eventually says, I was so offended by what this NSA was doing that I had to do this. This doesn't track with all of his behavior, of what he was doing. So he does find out that NSA has a stratification system for information. Level one, as he described, is administrative material, FISA orders, if you would, and directives. So that's level one material that's somewhat protected. The FISA order would be protected, but it's not the holy grail. Level two is access from secret sources. Not the secret sources themselves, but the product from secret services. That's level two. And all this would be at the top secret SCI level. Level three was the documents shared a small group of how you're getting it. What systems are we actually breaking into? The contracting world doesn't have access to most of this. As he's now working for uh, uh, Dell, he doesn't have access to level three. He has access to level one and two. But he knows that Booz Allen has access to level three because they support it. So something interesting happens. He decides that he needs to get a job at Booz Allen because he can't get everything he wants from Dell. And so since Dell only has level one and two and Booz Allen has one, two, and three, he needs to get in there. So what's he going to do? Well, he's going to apply to Booz Allen. They're going to have the right job, which is really interesting. So he, signed, he resigns from Dell and accepts another job from Booz Allen working for NSA. What's remarkable about this, by the way, is that he had no system analyst at, at this new job. He wasn't going to be a system analyst. And as a matter of fact, the new job 
paid less money. So he wanted a job that had lower pay. Now, should that have been a flag to anybody? If I'm working for Booz Allen and this guy comes in and wants to work for me and lose, lose up, but i got to pay you less money, why are you doing that? But no one seems to, I couldn't see any, why he wanted to do that. So he wants a job for less money. That should have been, I think, a signal for somebody. At least I would hope it would be. And so this is why he accepts a new job. Now, this is interesting because on the application, he explains that he was expecting to get a master's degree from Liverpool University in England. Any moment now, he tells this to Booz Allen, which is totally not true. He never took any courses from Liverpool. What like I told you, if he's talking, he's lying. And everything about his life, he lies about. In fact, he had not completed a single course at Liverpool, but no one checked. Booz Allen did never check. They just assumed that if he's telling them that, must be true. If they had, you say, why are you fabricating that? But he fabricates it knowing that no one's going to follow it up. And he never verified this, and they hired me as a training analyst. Well, this is in March. What's, you know, he's getting level good access. So what they do is he will say eventually his March plan, he will have to go to training. So during this time, he goes back to NSA, comes back here for a training. There's a new program, travels here, and he's here from the 1st to the 12th and travels back. And he attends mandatory training about what his job is going to be in Hawaii. During this time frame is the only time he ever documented the fact that he was concerned about NSA collection activity. Now, he repeatedly said, when I had a question, I always went to my managers and no one would listen to me. They told me to shut up, kid, and wouldn't have any problems. But I repeatedly brought this up to my managers at NSA. Well, he says, I repeatedly warned them that this was happening. This is his public persona. And that each, you don't have to read this, but each time he claimed I brought the issue up and I was told to shut up about it. When the president and others have made the point that you should have gone through channels, become a whistleblower, and not pursued the route you did, what's your response? I actually did go through channels, and that is documented. The NSA has records. They have copies of emails right now to their Office of General Counsel, to their oversight and compliance folks from me raising concerns about the NSA's interpretations of its legal authorities. Now, I have raised these complaints not just officially, in writing, through email, uh, to these offices and, and these individuals, but to my supervisors, to my colleagues, in more than one office. I did it in Fort Meade, I did it in Hawaii, and many, many of these individuals were shocked by these programs. They had never seen them themselves. And the ones who had went you know, you're right. These are things that are really concerning, and these aren't things that we should be doing. Maybe we're going too far here, but if you say something about this, they're going to destroy you. Do you know what happens to people who stand up and talk about this? What did you report? What was the response? So I reported that there were uh, real problems with the way the NSA was interpreting its legal authorities. And the response, more or less, uh, in bureaucratic language, was you should stop asking questions. And these are, these are recent records. This isn't ancient history. One of my, I, I would say, one of my final official acts in government was continuing one of, these, uh, one of these communications with a legal office. And, in fact, I'm so sure that these communications exist that I've called on Congress to write a letter to the NSA to, to verify that they do. Write to the Office of General Counsel and say, did Mr. Snowden uh, 
ever communicate any concerns about the NSA's interpretation of its legal authorities. And when they do that, and they come back and they say, no, he didn't, he will say, see, they're covering it up. Now, here's an interesting question. He's already stole at least 200,000 documents. And if he's preparing these documents, complaining about the activity, I'm just wondering, wouldn't he have retained a copy of his notification to people about his concerns? If, if he steal other documents, he would have no problem stealing another one to protect himself, to say, I told him about this, but none of those exist. And I question, then, why don't you keep a copy of it, Mr. Snowden? Because they didn't exist. The only documented concern at all was when he was in back in Fort Meade for training. And he asked it, General, he, it's a very simple question. The question was, what is the power of an executive order compared to a law? Does an executive order is have the power of the law or not? And the answer is, it's the most powerful thing an executive branch can do, but it doesn't have a criminal sanction with it. Yet laws are higher than executive orders. Thank you very much. Any other questions, Mr. Snowden? And that's what the attorney said to him. That's what he was complaining about. That one is documented, and the NSA made that public. But I would suggest the reason he didn't make any other ones public is that there weren't any other ones. But it's a great scenario. It's a great way to con America to say I was trying to do the right thing. He returns back to Hawaii. Now, this is when he makes his last big hit. He's already decided that he's going to steal as much as he can. He gets back there, and he's assigned as an OJT training facility at the National Threat Operations Center, and they focus on signal intelligence from Asia. So his system access is not revoked, the same thing you and I were talking about. He had been a system and was not revoked, should have been revoked at this time. He wasn't working on that. And so what it does is it gave him access to a whole series of information. And so on April 15, he applied for This is interesting. He comes back from Maryland on the 12th of April. And on the 15th, three days later, he goes to his boss and says, I think I have epilepsy, and i got to go back to the States to see a doctor. Now, I feel sorry if he had epilepsy. By the way, he does not suffer from epilepsy, just like he did not want well, nucleosis, just like he didn't break two legs, didn't have any of that. But this is his excuse already in April that I've got to go back. Why is he doing it? He's setting up the time for his escape. So a month before his escape or his defection, he tells the boss, i got to go back for this reason. And that's how he explains leaving very quickly to go back. He never had any proof for his doctors. I would suggest that you should have done that. As a good manager, epilepsy for your doctor, can I have the file? Can I see this? Because we're really concerned about you. But he never, they never ask him for that. He never has to provide that. And I would suggest they should have. So only two months of employment with BHS before he eventually leaves them. So his goal is to get access to 24 different compartmented systems. And how he had access to these, everyone protected by a code word, remains a mystery. We can identify publicly at least three ways, three of the uh, passwords he got into, but we don't know about how he got the rest of them. There are a number of mysteries, at least in the public domain, of pieces of this case. Maybe the government knows the rest of it. So at least three individuals uh, share their password with him, and that's how he gets into at least three of the areas. And that one of the NSA employees resigned as a result of that, so he was victimized by it. And uh, he, he was trying to help him. He said he gave him the number and he shouldn't have. I'm not going to talk about this guy who lost his job, but the, how they got access to it. Now, one of the things he did with the large volume of information that he's going to collect, he entered this into the system, a software installed in the database known as a robotic spider. If you know what a robotic spider is, it can go out and search for C words keywords and pull them all together. So if you got all the 1.7 million documents 
how are you going to get the ones you want? So he puts in the keywords that pulls them all together. Now, he shouldn't have been able to put that on there, but he did, probably because he had access as a systems administrator. So he's pulling together all the information he wants. He then can download that information and that rich, that richer uh, sense of documents he's going to steal. So how he gets, does that, we probably can infer, infer he does that. And by the way, systems analysts use computers that are unsealed. There are very few computers that are, what I mean by sealed and unsealed, you know on your computer you have a USB site, well, you build a computer that's not open. In a sealed computer, there's no way to connect an external device to your computer. But a few people, the systems analysts, have unsealed computers because they have to go in and pull stuff off. And he had access to that. That could have been the way he would put this uh, software package in there. And he gained access to the unsealed computer. How he did it is a mystery. He could have just walked up and done it. Not sure how he was able to do it. But how he acquired 24 passwords and how he did that is still a mystery in this case. So he obtains the list of computers in Russia and China that were penetrated by NSA. How useful that information would be. What are the actual computers that, you're, that we are listening to and got access to? That's what he got in level three material. So then on May 17th, he decides to act. He's collected all the information. Now he was only offended by what the U.S. government is doing against Americans, the vast majority of the material he stole, he never would have stolen. But if you actually studied, and I don't have time to go into it here, uh, but this was had nothing to do with protecting the civil rights of Americans. It has to do with foreign intelligence. And that's what we do in foreign intelligence. But that's what he stole. And now I guess he's a citizen of the world to invite the whole world of what's going on. That's how he justifies doing this. So what he does is he gets Lindsay, he has to have Lindsay leave, so he buys her ability to visit the other islands. By the way, anybody been assigned to Hawaii? Anybody been, and been in Hawaii? All right. Well, you know if you're, if you're in Hawaii as a tourist, you can go to island to island because in each place you've got to get a hotel and a car. People who live there don't do that because they, they have to rent a, a car and rent a place where they already have one. So generally you find Hawaiians don't visit the other islands, which I was quite amazed when I found that out because it's more expensive for them. But he takes Lindsay and he pays for her to visit the other islands. She goes off and he abandons her behind that and takes off on his venture. And so he says to her, leaving a note, I'm going on a business trip. He flies to Japan, then on to Hong Kong. And then something very interesting happens. He leaves her a note. He flies there. It's a four-hour flight from Hong Kong, arrives in the morning of May 20th, and then he disappears for 10 days. There's no, he goes off the radar screen. There's no charges, no record of him at all for 10 days. Now, how do you go into a country like Hong Kong from Japan, having never been there before, and you're off the radar screen? You're off the grid. We all set up a thing. This, where are you? Well, he's got to be somewhere. Someone had to meet him. So he has to be in some place. Someone had to feed him. Someone had to move him around. But there's no documentation as to where he is for 10 days. He doesn't surface again until he shows up in a hotel. And that after he's in Hollywood for 10 days. So he flies into this location, did not use his personal credit card or leave any paper trail to his location. And so the question is, who helped him? Must, someone must have helped him. Now, was that, you know, was that friendly people who hate the government? Was that China? Was that Russia? Uh, my view is I think it's Russia. I think they were already helping him, that it was already pre-planned. No evidence of that. It is There is evidence he did visit the Russian consulate. There is a cover story as to where he was later. I'll show you that. But he, he will email his boss back in Booz Allen, advising <coughs> that he had the test, and he came back, and there were bad results. So he's going to explain being missing for a period of time, and that's all okay with his boss in Booz Allen. 
So while he's in Hong Kong doing this. And during these 10 days, this is when he emails the two journalists that he's been in contact with since January. They agree to meet him. This is when he leaves his safe house, checks into uh, the hotel in his true name. And it's during this time he's interviewed by the journalists, and he lies to them also. He had said, I'm a senior advisor to the CIA, he tells them, that he was a senior advisor to DIA, and that he had $20,000 salary at Booz Allen, when in fact it was $130,000, and that he had the authority to intercept the president's private communications, which is blatantly untrue. But the journalists want to believe this. Without any follow-up, they begin to accept everything he said. Now, if that happened to me as a professional, I would do asset validation. Who is this guy? And asset validation is a pretty simple area. We know when you teach asset validation, what do you have to determine? Well, you have to determine three things. Authenticity of the person, reliability of the person, the loyalty of them, their dedication, and their trustworthiness, and their dependability. And are they under control? Those are how you do asset validations. You would think that a journalist would do part of that. They did none of that because they have a 29-year-old, not a 30, not a 60-year-old, but they have what they want in that's documentation. So they accepted everything he said, hook, line, and sinker, that who he is is exactly who he says he is, and they get what they want, which is the product. And so the story is in the newspaper from June 6th to July 9th. Uh, and the front page, A section, every single day, the Washington Post. And it starts in June 6th. We don't know who it is. We know there's a leak. Uh, we know people are defending what we're doing. And then finally on the 8th, uh, he is, as this is being debated, uh, he will become public. And once he's public, the next story begins to change. He's there for a while, and he falls off the grid again. He falls off the grid, and people say, where is he? And people are protecting him. So, oh, he went to the ghetto in Hong Kong. Well, I don't believe he would go to the ghetto. What we do know he did is he went to the Soviet consulate office. This man is liars. They hired him to do this, and he visited the consulate in Russia. Now, if he had visited the consulate, and the evidence is he did, that I don't think they let him out of the building so he could go to a ghetto in Hong Kong. Not so much as valuable as this. He will eventually say, I wanted to go to another country. There's no evidence he ever visited any other embassy or consulate in Hong Kong. Well, if they wanted to go to Ecuador or Bolivia or something, he wouldn't have go there and see if he could get a visa to go there because he's in Hong Kong. He doesn't. He doesn't visit any place else. He doesn't get a visa for anybody else when he's there. He's in the Russian consulate office. Now, conjecture, my view is that they kept him there. They wouldn't let him get into another place that's unsafe. And that's when he eventually, uh, that we filed charges against him. Now, he is smart. He's got good lawyers because he becomes a hero around the world. Uh, he's charged with Title 18, Section 793 and 798. 793 is little espionage. That's unauthorized uh, retention of classified information. It's not passage of information. Passage to a foreign power is 794. That's big espionage. Go to jail for the rest of your life. It's capital offense. He's, that's why he's never admitted ever that I ever talked to any foreign government because he knows that if he ever admits that and they have a tape or anything else, you could charge him with 794. He has not been charged with 794. 793, which is retention of classified information. He then said, I gave that information to the media. And that's a story all by itself about how that also doesn't wash as to wh where the information is. Uh, that's the government properties TGP, by the way. And 798 is cryptological information. So that's what he's charged with. So he faces 10 years. But remember, espionage is not a 
it's not an extraditable crime. So he's in Russia. He won't come back from Russia unless they send him back from Russia. We can't, or unless some other way. And then they're going to go, no one's going to grab him when he's there. So that's where he still is, living a wonderful life in Moscow, I'm sure, saying, I never had any contact with the FSB when I was there, which wouldn't be true. Living in a safe house, which would have been controlled by their intelligence service, which is the only way that would operate. And so interesting in what his life is going to be. The rest of the story, I don't have time to talk to you about unless you want to invite me back sometime and I continue the story because I don't want to keep you too long. But it is an interesting one. A couple of things you should know about him. One of the ways he makes his money is because he is paid by American universities, sometimes $30,000 for a one-hour lecture over the Internet. American universities are paying him $30,000 for a one-hour lecture over the Internet because they think that he's a victim of the U.S. government and all the atrocities the American government does. He has conned the world. He has conned these universities, and they pay him that amount of money. Not sure how that long that's going to last, but that's how he's sustaining himself. At least we know that. He's also got some appointments in some universities in Europe. He's the regent of one in Stockholm, but he can't go to it, obviously. Um, so he has this public persona. There has been some Americans have gone over and given him an award, five of them, uh, which is hilarious because they're all clapping. There's only five people clapping and when he gets this award when he's doing it. So now he's this cause, cause celeb to beat up on American intelligence. And the media has never told the full story. One last story, and they can open up for questions. I just got interviewed uh, a month ago by a TV production company who was trying to do a very extensive program on the truth about Snowden. So they interviewed me for like four hours on camera, telling him the same story I just told you. And I says, if you can get that published, people ought to know what the rest of the story is, because there's so much myth around who Snowden is. So very complicated case.